Well, good morning, and uh, welcome to the Leeward campus of uh, Christ Community. We're really glad you're here. This is a gorgeous day, as we've all said. So I'm impressed that you made it to church today. Um, I was wondering if I should too, but um, <laughs> obligations overwhelm my spontaneity. Um, anyway, we're just really delighted you're here, and if you're visiting particularly, just so glad you're here. Uh, thank you. I hope you sense a warmth here and the presence of Christ here. Um, and uh, we're just delighted. Well, I want to share with you uh, something about myself today. Maybe some of you know this. I'm a guy, and uh, I love weddings. I really, really do. And uh, it all started when my wonderful bride, Liz, the most beautiful woman in the world, walked down the aisle, and I'll never forget that moment. It was like an out-of-the-body experience. It was amazing, and it is etched in my mind and heart forever. Weddings bring lots of memories and lots of celebration, lots of joys. But let's be, let's be honest, weddings can, well, they can be stress on steroids. <laughs> I don't know if you follow all the email. I get all these emails, especially that take me to YouTube. I mean, that's how America spends its time these days, right? YouTube. And um, there's lots of wedding faux pas on YouTube. And one of them that recently just went viral, I don't know how many millions and millions of people around the world saw it, was of a rather inebriated wedding guest uh, dancing on this, uh, under this tent, on this re- reception tent along this pole, doing a pole dance. And the whole thing fell down and actually injured the bride with this big gash on her legs and blood on her gown. I mean, it was It was amazing. You know, another thing, you know, another thing about weddings is that I got to let, let you in on a little secret. Maybe you know this. You know, clergy types are strange characters. Uh, when clergy types get together, uh, we often talk about weddings. Do you know that? The names are, are, are you know, changed to protect the embarrassed, for sure. <laughs> but we often, even if we don't know each other, the conversation often comes around about a wedding we've done. And the longer you've been in this, the more you've done, and the more stories you have. Well, recently, I shared a story with some colleagues, and they rated it a 10. (laughs) Do you want to hear it? I'll just give you a little bit of it. True story, no embellishment. No embellishment. I was uh, officiating a wedding, and um, everything was going great. The processional went great. And then the father and the bride come down the aisle. And I'm standing up here, as the clergy types do, right, with the groom right next to me, and thinking, this is going to be a beautiful wedding. So they walk down the aisle, and the father, the bride, and the bride stop right there. And I just start by saying, please be seated. As soon as I finish that, the father of the bride's cell phone rings. True story. You could have heard a pin drop across the audience, and you should have seen the look of the bride at her dad. Like, how do you spell clueless? You think that's bad? I thought the guy would grab it, embarrassed, and put it back in his pocket. He answers it. True story. 
Not only does he say, I got to go, he starts talking and then finally says, I got to go. You, how do you recover from a wedding like that? <laughs> True story. No embellishment. In fact, the only thing I will not talk about the wedding is what I was thinking at that moment. <laughs> Weddings can become stress on steroids. And isn't it interesting that in John's magnificent gospel, he presents to us 2,000 years ago, Jesus at a wedding that becomes stress on steroids. And if you have a Bible with you, uh, turn with me, if you haven't already, to the, the gospel of John. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John chapter 2. Now, as we enter John's gospel, uh, it's one of the favorite of people who have read the Bible. It's called the gospel of belief. And if you've been a part of Christ's community or if you're newer, we're going through the whole year. We're kind of scooting through the Bible called Open Here, and it's a wonderful opportunity. And if you haven't jumped in, uh, you can jump in and hear the Bible read every uh, day through an email or a text or whatever. But in Open Here, we are getting ready to look through the Gospel of John. And so as we get into the Gospel of John, let me set the sort of literary and cultural and historical backdrop before we get into chapter 2, because it's important for all of us. Now, let's say that John's gospel is unique in many ways, unlike Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's gospel was written about 40 to 50 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. It was written by Jesus' closest earthly friend, the disciple John. John had spent three years every waking minute with Jesus. So, John invites us into the most intimate conversations and unique experiences of any of the gospel writers. Now, John, when he writes this, as he opens the scroll of the parchment, probably a dim-colored candle, a little bit of light, a clear crystal mind, but a shaky hand as he begins to pen his gospel. His gospel is really a memoir of intimate moments with Jesus, but it has a purpose his literary arrangement and structures are all built around this purpose, which we find actually later, which is brilliant literary artistry. It's found, if you have your gospel open, look with me briefly at chapter 20, verse 30 through 31. John gives us explicitly, unlike other New Testament writers, the purpose to which he is writing. And he says, John 20, 30 through 31, we have it on the screen as well. Now, Jesus did many other signs, and this word signs is going to be important to John. In, which, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, they see this little word, so that. Here's his purpose, his literary purpose. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that's Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing him, in him, you may have life. So John will arrange the whole gospel around this purpose. Literally and structurally, he will arrange it around seven signs. Let's remember the use of signs in first century culture as well as today. Signs give us direction, don't they? See a sign by the road, it points you somewhere. Well, in this case, the signs that John is going to unpack not only point us to a destination, but to a person. So they have two ideas about pointing, revealing who Jesus is and where he is taking us in the world. So keep that in mind. Now, John will arrange seven signs, and this morning we are going to look at the first sign in chapter 2. As we enter into chapter 2, a couple of things I'd like all of us to keep in mind as we have a really a delightful time of exploration together in this brilliant narrative. 
First is that John has the most intimate relationship with Jesus of any human being. He is often describing himself not in arrogance but in transparency as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But not only does he have a very close relationship with Jesus, probably the closest relationship with any human being that lived in Jesus' time, but also John has a very close relationship with Jesus' mother Mary. And this is important to grasp. In fact, in John chapter 19, when Jesus is dying on the cross, John and Mary are down by the cross in front of him. And Jesus is the oldest son of the family, and most likely tradition has it that Mary's husband Joseph has died. So Jesus looks at John and entrusts to John what is most precious to him, his mom, and says, basically, John, take care of her for me. So from that point on, John has a very special relationship with Mary, and he is her guardian. Now, scoot forward in time. Years passed. John has taken care of Mary. They are both elderly. And I imagine that as John is getting ready to write his memoirs or his gospel, there is an amazing conversation. As you get older, often with dear friends that have shared the journey with you, you get together and you reminisce about moments together. It's just what it means to get older. So if you would imagine with me what I think is going on here in this text, is that behind the text, there is Mary and John having a conversation over tea. And I can imagine Mary starting the conversation with John and saying something like, John, do you, do you remember the wedding at Cana? Do you remember how I was freaked out? Do you remember how I came to Jesus? And do you remember that all these people showed up and there was no wine? And Uncle Abraham was freaking out, not alone, let alone his butler Mordecai. And John says, yeah, Mary, I'll never forget the look on your face. When you came to Jesus, I was right next to him. I had no idea what Jesus was going to do. But what I remember most is Master of the Feast, Butler Mordecai, the look on his face when he tasted the wine. This wasn't two buck chuck at Trader Joe's. <laughs> this is the backstory. A little bit of imagination, perhaps, but there is a conversation, there is a reminiscing. John retells a story. And Mary is front and center in the story. Now, this story has a threefold progression. It unfolds this way in John's mind. In verses 1 and 2 is the big wedding crisis, and he welcomes us into this crisis, and it is a crisis. Then, in verses 4 and 5, there is a very brief conversation. So it goes from this crisis to this conversation, and then this better celebration in verses 6 through 11. So if you're taking notes in your mind or heart or a piece of pen or on your uh, iPad, the text flows like this. As John recalls the moment, he is right there with Jesus and Mary. He says there was a big crisis, a brief conversation, and then a better celebration afterwards. So let's look first at the big crisis. It is amazing in the first couple of verses how, G how John invites all of us 
into this narrative. You'll notice Jesus is there, the disciples are there, Mary's there, and the picture is all the village of Cana is there and then some. It makes sense. Because in the first century culture, you didn't just have a wedding day. You had a wedding several days, often four or five days to a week. Now, if you saw this great movie a few years ago, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, remember that movie? This is the picture of uncles and aunties and add the whole village and people are eating and laughing and they're drinking like, well, whatever, okay? This is the picture we have. And evidently, more people showed up than they ever imagined in the first century culture. And this is an indeed a crisis. It is a humiliation to the host family, the bridegroom and his family. This is a Houston, Apollo 13 moment, right? Houston, we have a problem. It's not a potential loss of life, but it is a potential loss of face. And that is as important in the first century culture as anything. So this is an intense crisis. This is stress on steroids. Our daughter Sarah was married just a few years ago, and uh, it was a great day. Uh, It was an October day, much like today, sunny and beautiful, and my bride Liz and Sarah and a whole bunch of people had planned this wedding well, and people had come from all over the United States, friends and family, and you know, weddings are a big deal. They're exciting, but there's lots of details. So everything was going really good. Um, I remember that morning, everything, you know, everyone got picked up at the airport, everything looked good, all the plans had been laid out. And I remember we were supposed to show up two hours at the church before the wedding. So we're all feeling pretty good, everything's going great. We pull up to the church, and there's two fire trucks and the fire alarm going off. Now that's stress on steroids. Because everything had been planned for that day. People had come, everything was going to be perfect. And all of a sudden, I had this terrible feeling that, what do we do? How do you do a wedding outside? What happens if there's fire in the church? This is bad timing. Thankfully, the good story is that it was just a false alarm. And they were able to shut the alarm off. And the fire trucks left. And we started the wedding on time. Yes. But this is a fire alarm moment. Mary is hearing the fire alarm going off. And she comes to Jesus. And this is important. We don't know Mary's relationship. Doesn't seem she's a family member. But she comes to Jesus with a sense of panic. There's a crisis. Now, to come to Jesus is not surprising for Mary. If you think about it, he is the oldest son in the family. And in that cultural context, again, Joseph, her husband, is most likely dead. So you go to the oldest son, but let's think of it this way. Can you imagine what it was like raising Jesus, the perfect son? Imagine what it was like being his brothers or sisters? Oh, good grief. How would you like kids to have a perfect older brother that never did anything wrong? And if you're a parent, you know that if you had a perfect kid, they'd be your favorite kid. So Jesus is not only the oldest son, I mean, Jesus is the perfect favorite son. But there's something more going on here. Mary comes to Jesus because she knows Jesus is not only the life of the party, Jesus is what the party is all about. 
What surprises us is not that Mary comes to Jesus. What surprises us is the brevity of the conversation between the two of them. Let me press into that just a bit. Verses 4 and 5, if you're following along. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Doesn't this surprise you? How amazingly brief this conversation is. I mean, if I were Mary, I would have explained everything. And if I were Jesus, I'd ask some questions like, well, what happened? What, you know, what's the matter with this family? Why didn't they order enough? I mean, there's nothing. Mary gets right to the point. And Jesus does too. The challenge is that the two points they're getting to are not intersecting. Mary's point is to solve the wedding wine crisis. Jesus' point is to solve the world's sin crisis. And you find this moment of tension. Now, in English, when we hear Jesus respond to Mary, probably panicky Mary. When we hear this word woman, we often hear woman. But that's not at all what the text is saying. If we translate it into sort of the parlance of, let's just use a polite southern gentleman speaking to his mother, it'd be ma'am. It's a respectful greeting or response. And we know this because in John chapter 19, when Jesus is talking to his mom from the cross, he uses that same language of gentleness and affection. Now, isn't it interesting, if you're following along here, that... After his quick response, Mary turns to the servants. Let's think of the catering team, okay? Put it in our cultural context. And all she says to them is, do whatever he tells you. This is so funny. And yet there's something very profound going on here. Because Mary is modeling what John is going to unpack for the whole book. She is modeling complete trust in Jesus because she knows who her, who her son really is. She knows he is not just the life of the party. He is what the big party's all about. And in verses 6 through 11, what a party, huh? We see this better celebration and Jesus now becomes the master of the feast, the new wine, the new wineskins, the new celebration. And when Jesus does something, he does it right. Now, John has already told us in John chapter 1 that this Jesus is unique. He is the one who put the universe in motion as the eternal Logos. So it's not surprising that this Jesus who created all the atoms and flung the atoms into motion based on his spoken word of the entire universe. You talk about a big bang. This wine to water, water to wine thing is just a small whisper. And what a beautiful miracle. It's vivid color. Notice in verses 6 through 9. John wants us to have lots of detail in this case. 
You'll notice in the text that John eyes six water pots. These are big water pots. They're not something you carry by yourself. And they're used for purification rites and washing feet. They're not the kind of water pots you drink out of. Because they're rather dirty, actually. Unclean. And notice that John says there's a lot of water, or at least these pots have a lot, a capacity. Notice he says 20 to 30 gallons. Good grief. Why the detail? And if my math is right, don't count me on that one. My math is right times six, that's like 120 to 180 gallons of water. Actually, it becomes the best wine they've ever tasted. And here we have this picture of generous abundance. The Creator Redeemer, when He speaks, brings generous joy. There's abundance. But notice also now in the story, we're introduced to a new character. All of a sudden, there's this character that emerges in the narrative called the Master of the Feast. And the Master of the Feast was like, again, the lead servant. He was the butler. And I cannot help but think that he was a lot like Downton Abbey's Carson. <laughs> Don't you think? In my glorified imagination, just put a little bit of a Jewish beard on him. <laughs> Carson's world, or the master of the feast world, was as starched as a scholar. Carson had a world where he was king of his kitchen. It was his domain. He ruled. Everything had a place, and everything was in its place. Carson was about protocol. And if there was anyone at the wedding celebration, which again lasted for days, that is now sweating bullets, it's this guy. And I love the story because John highlights this guy's response in verse 10. And Carson, or Mordecai, or whatever his name was, has a shock and awe moment. He is caught between sheer incredulity and sheer relief. And look at verse 10. That's what he says to the bridegroom. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now? One sense, I think there's marvel, but there's much more rebuke. This is the guy who's about protocol. It would be like, kind of like, today if you were a wedding coordinator and uh, it was a big wedding, big deal. One of the things about a reception you want to have right is the cake. Imagine a wedding coordinator or a caterer or whoever's responsible for the food in the night not bringing out the cake until everyone is done dancing and the bride and groom have left. unthinkable. This is where Carson is, or the master of the feast is. This is way out of protocol. You should have brought this sooner is the implication. And there doesn't seem to be any indication that the master of the feast really cares or understands the nature of the miracle. 
but he can tell good wine when he tastes it. Now, notice John pictures that everyone seems to be blind to what's going on, or almost everyone except for Mary and the disciples and maybe a few of the servants. And notice in verse 11 how he ends this story. He says, this is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. As you make your way through the Gospel of John, you will see this little word glory peppered throughout the Gospel. It starts in John 1.14, we beheld His glory, and continues all the way through the Gospel. It's important to John. Glory in the Old Testament, in John's Old Testament Jewish world, was that picture of something that was so real, so heavy, it often is weighty. It captures someone's full substance. And it was often tied to the Shekinah glory, the glory of God, where God's manifest presence was brought to the earth, like His fingerprints and footprints of God Almighty touching space and time. It was His glory. It was His manifestation of His deity. This word has implications of the jet trails of deity all over it. The book of Hebrews captures the same language the attributes of deity of Jesus, and uses this language. And Hebrews describes the deity of Jesus in the phrase, the radiance of the glory of God. John wants us to know right away in his gospel that something new is afoot in the world, that God himself, the one who created the world, has come near. And that with the Messiah's arrival, a grand party of new creation has already begun you will notice something. The John says this is Jesus' first sign. Do you see that? And John is using first not only in numerical sequence of the seven arrangement, but more importantly, John is saying this is foundational. It's a first of primacy. In other words, the reader needs to get the significance of this. And what is it? John is saying that with new wine and new wineskins, Jesus, Messiah, is bringing in, there is a grand celebration. That Jesus is the better jar of purification than those jars sitting there. That Jesus is the better bridegroom. That Jesus is the better wine. That Jesus is the better master of the feast. That Jesus is not only the life of the party, he is what the party is all about. And that Jesus offers a new kind of life, a new kind of joy, a new kind of wine, a new kind of celebration. He is the life of the party. While all other parties on earth end, he is the one that offers endless delight. And John wants us to know that this wedding is just a foretaste, just a little shadow of what is to come. And this text, I think, raises the question, are we parting with Jesus? What comes to your mind when you think about Jesus? You know, we have lots of thoughts that probably come to our mind, right? Miracle worker, great teacher. Sometimes I think we think of Jesus as kind of sober and sad and sour. And yes, he had moments of sadness. And yes, he said things that were hard to hear. But one of the themes throughout Jesus' life, and I encourage you to read the Gospels, he's having parties a lot. He's eating and drinking with people, people who his enemies, his opponents don't like. So Jesus, he's no ascetic. He's no monastic. Jesus is having a party with all kinds of people, some people that other people didn't think were very good people. 
Jesus knew how to celebrate good gifts. Of course, Jesus didn't get drunk or anything like that. Talking about that kind of a party. But Jesus' celebration makes sense when we understand why he came and why John places this first. And that is to marry a bride, us, his church. We as followers of Jesus, if you've embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you are an apprentice of Jesus, you should be the most hopeful, joyful person, even in the midst of discouragement and brokenness in this sin-scarred planet. But are we known by others around us as a joyful, celebratory lot? Let me challenge us with three ideas to tuck into our heart and mind as we leave and serve the Lord this week. First is this, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. This is where John has this. So who or what are you looking for joy in your life? A good marriage, as wonderful as that is. Good job, good grades, good health, fun friends, secure retirement. These are all good things, of course, unless they are ultimate things, and they never bring us ultimate joy. They're only a foreshadow, only a taste, only an appetizer. Notice John ends his verse with this big takeaway. The disciples believed in Jesus. The disciples are not focusing on the good wine anymore, but the good winemaker. And that's where the gospel takes us. It moves us from self-sufficiency to a focus on Jesus. And the one who died for us and rose again that we trust, like Mary trusted Jesus on that moment at that wedding. So can I ask you, is Jesus your personal Lord and Savior? Have you embraced him? Do you know him? You can't find true joy that your heart was created to experience and that you long to experience unless you find it in him. That's where true joy is found. The writer of Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, tells us the importance of keeping our eyes in the right place. When life has you down, God's word says to look up and get your eyes on Jesus. The writer says this of Hebrews, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Joy in the cross. Despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. No matter what you're facing, what difficulties and challenges you're facing, Joy is found when you get your eyes on Jesus. John Piper, an author, writes these words. He says, there is nothing fuller than full and nothing longer than forever, so you can't offer me anything better than life with Jesus. We all long for joy. We all look for joy. The question is, where are we looking? And John says, look at Jesus. But not only look at Jesus, John says in this text to find joy now. I don't know what again you're facing today. You may be facing a difficult marriage. Your heart may be broken from a loss. You may be facing a prolonged singleness when you want to be married and share your life with someone. You may be facing a very difficult business decision that keeps you up at night. I know what that's like. 
or a prolonged physical illness or mental illness, or there may be a time right now in your life, spiritual life, where you are just as dry as toast and God seems so far, or your heart can be just strangled by worry and anxiety. Is there a joy that can lift you up when life has you down? John says, yes. A friend of mine is getting ready to release a book called Joy for the World. Greg Forster defines joy beautifully in this new book coming out. This is what he says. Joy is not an emotion. It is a life lived for God. See, joy is not always feeling up. That will let you down. It is looking up at Jesus. Joy is a person that you know, not a circumstance you enjoy. The kind of joy Jesus offers is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's a joy that transcends any circumstance you may be facing because Jesus is not only the life of the party, he is what the party's all about. He is where joy is found. So look to Jesus, find joy now, and last, live with hope. Live with hope. Hope is to our souls what oxygen is to our physical bodies. You and I cannot live long without it. Those six large water pots that John wants us to focus in Canaan of Galilee are not only brimming with new wine, they are brimming with new hope for your life and mine. Jesus' first miracle points to a future wedding that is coming. Augustine, this brilliant church father of the fourth century, had this text called. This is what he says. He says, the Lord was invited and came to a wedding. Is it any wonder that he came to that house for a wedding? He came to this world for a wedding. John, the same disciple who was at that wedding with Jesus in Cana of Galilee, penned this, the words of the future wedding that he was looking forward to, the wedding that Cana pointed to as the sign of signs. John points you and me to the ultimate destination wedding. Right? We love destination weddings. Some exotic place, beautiful, a destination wedding. The Bible ends with this destination wedding that those who are in Christ are invited to join in at the feast. Notice John with shaky hands on the island of Patmos, an old man with a good heart, a good mind, and dim of eyes. This is what he writes. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. What a wedding celebration it will be. It is what the whole Bible builds to. It is what John points us to. 
There are many lovers of Jesus that I long to see on that day. But the one I long to see most is the greatest lover of my soul, and that's Jesus, the Lamb who was slain for you and me. A great wedding day awaits. A great feast awaits. The Apostle Paul, who faced great suffering and difficulty, said with a passionate heart later on in his life in the epistle of joy in Philippians, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How could Paul say that? Because his eyes were on Jesus and he was living with joy and hope. His eyes were on the wedding that was to come. You know, I've been kind of hard on the master of the feast, old Carson. The master of the feast got something really right when he said, with sheer incredulity and perhaps bold rebuke to the bridegroom. Everyone, everyone serves the good wine first. But you have saved the best for last. Little did he know that's the Jesus kind of wine. Jesus saves and is saving the best for last. For you and me, his bride. Now that's a wedding celebration I simply can't wait for. How about you? Let's pray. Help us, Lord Jesus, in the midst of our blinding busyness, our self-absorption, to get our eyes back on you today. To look to the cross, through the empty tomb, to the destination wedding that awaits us, your bride, in the new heavens and new earth. Oh, glorious day they'll be. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us this day. Cleanse us from our sin. Fill us to the brim with the new wine of kingdom joy. And push back the clouds of sin and sadness. Drive the dark of doubt away. For you are the giver of immortal gladness. And fill every heart with the light of day. For you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are stronger. You are stronger. And sin is broken. And you have saved us for a glorious day.